1: and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
2: I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking.
3: Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think, I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Sit down. It's sticking you off. You're
2: a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs
1: a mirror. I oh, mean, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute, and with me today are two colleagues, both political scientists from the School of Politics and International Relations, Dr. Maria Taflaga, who's with us as usual. Hi there, Maria.
2: Hello, Mark. How are you?
1: I am very well, thank you, uh, struggling through the Canberra winter, and uh, the, the winter is something that we might actually come to, because it may well turn out <laughs> yeah, to be a, a military factor. That voice mm-hmm. you can hear is Dr. Charles Miller, Senior Lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations as well. Uh, you've been on Democracy Sausage before, have, yeah, talking about, uh, yeah, we've talked about Trump, and we've talked mm-hmm. about Ukraine mm-hmm. not so long ago, and that is really uh, the sort of main mm. uh, subject of our of our chat today. Um I thought uh if it's fine with you Mary I might ask Charlie first um okay to call you Charlie Yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah. go for it Um uh, thought I might ask you just in sort of broad terms about where we are with the Ukraine war mm-hmm. and perhaps to make an observation about um What's you know? What are the sort of big things we've learnt because mm-hmm. we went into this, or you know, mm-hmm. Ukraine involuntarily mm-hmm. went into this mm-hmm. with Russia's invasion, uh, but but the rest of the world sort of thinking that Russia mm-hmm. could overwhelm Ukraine mm-hmm. quite quickly. Mm-hmm. This is often a vanity of mm-hmm. uh, of great powers, isn't mm-hmm. it, or of powerful countries uh, to think they can take territory and that military conquests will be relatively swift. Mm-hmm.
3: Hasn't been that way at all. So that's mm-hmm. kind
1: of, in a sense, the biggest thing about this, really, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I, I, it has been the major, um, I, I don't think that it was a major miscalculation by Russia to think that it could take um, Ukraine in the um, in a relatively short amount of time, in the sense that obviously it was wrong, but I don't think Russia were the only people who thought that. A large proportion of military experts believed that. The US military apparently and intelligence services and classified briefings um, believed that as well. That's why the Americans offered Zelensky the option of um, going into exile being, mm. being a spirited Yeah, people away. forget
1: that, don't they? Yeah, yes. they
3: do. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, um, I don't think it was irrational. It turned out to be wrong, but it wasn't a, a totally crazy, bizarre belief on the part of the Russians that they could overwhelm Ukraine in a couple of days. Now, obviously, that didn't happen. Um, I mean, we could talk about the reasons for I think I spoke about the reasons for it um, a little bit in the last podcast. But... Um, the the last podcast I was on, but what what basically happened was that the Russians were attempting really to decapitate the Ukrainian leadership, mm. um, presumably to um, capture Kiev, um, kill or capture Zelensky or force him into exile, install their own pu- puppet government, and essentially um, take over the Ukraine and turn it into probably a Russian puppet mm. in the same way that to a large um, degree um, Belarus is, or at least it's in the Russian the Russian orbit. Um, that didn't happen. So the Ukrainians um resisted, they fought back um very well, they f- inflicted a lot of losses on the Russians. Um and so um the Russians had to give up um the attempt to capture Kiev. Um and so they moved the primary axis of their advance to the Donbass, which is um the um term and the area in eastern Ukraine, yeah. um where there are substantial Russian speaking minorities um which um were rose up and partly assisted by the Russians. Um took over some territory uh, back in 2014 um in the previous um Russian um war against Ukraine and um basically the Russians um, wanted to extend their conquests there um and also um to move into the south to create a corridor linking the territories um in the Donbass with um the Crimea which they took um in the 2014 conflict mm. as well so that was the um, that that was um, how the war um, proceeded from then. Now, what happened from there on in? So um, after the, the battle in Kiev, um, a sort narrative took hold in the the West. Sorry that the um, that the Ukrainians had the Russians on the run, um, and they were going to beat them. We had a lot of people saying we can't humiliate Russia too much. I think it was Emmanuel Macron that said that, and. Um, then, however, um, the, the, the battle in the Donbass was a little bit more ambiguous, so the Russians changed their tactics and they went for um, very heavy artillery bombardments. So up until positions. this point, point, they mm-hmm.
1: one of the criticisms made by a number of people was that they'd struck out on a number of fronts in mm-hmm. that early stage yeah. of the war, whereas the, the phase you were... De- Talking about yep. now, yep. they've started to concentrate yep. on those areas and use much more artillery, much more concentrated forces yep. to try and take those territories yep. rather
3: than be spread too thin. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so that's what they did. And they went for small advances bit by bit, chipping away at Ukrainian territory. Um, and the Ukrainians were really under the cosh. And um especially the Russian artillery was taking a grievous toll of Ukrainian um personnel and the Russians, although they weren't making rapid advances, they were bit by bit pushing further and further into eastern Ukraine. Um and also they pushed in through the south, captured uh, Mariupol, Kherson, um and so on, and um applied a blockade um to um, Ukrainian shipping coming out of Odessa, which the Ukrainian a port which the Ukrainians still hold in western Ukraine. Um and then um, since then, I mean, the war has taken a, another little bit of a shift, especially um, since the um, Americans started providing the Ukrainians with um, the now-fabled HIMARS um, long-range artillery um, system. Yeah, which, so these uh,
1: are these are um, rockets, right? That's, that's right. HIMARS yeah. is, a, is a mobile yep. r-
3: um, rocket system. Yes, yeah, a mobile yep. rocket system, that's right. And the Ukrainians have used them very intelligently to target um, Russian ammunition dumps, logistics behind um, behind the lines and so on, um, and have been able to inflict a lot of losses on the Russians and really kind of stop or halt the the Russian um, strategy of um, plastering places with artillery and then taking bit by bit more Ukrainian territory. So the Ukrainians have managed to kind of push the, the tide of the war a little bit back in their own favour. And now um, the talk, which we're hearing increasingly, is um, that the Ukrainians are preparing a counter Offensive. That's the um, yeah. That's that's, yeah. that's 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 the next big thing in the war. Um, according to a lot of the chatter, anyway. Yeah.
2: And that counter-offensive, Charlie, is that going to be centered on her son?
3: Well. Um, we're not sure. And I wouldn't really like to speculate too much on it. I mean, I don't know if Russian intelligence exactly listens to the Democracy Association. Well, who doesn't? <laughs> well, right, exactly. No. <laughs> Vladimir Putin is sitting here, you know, desperately intent on gleaming hints of Ukrainian yeah. strategy. Yeah, he thinking... hasn't
1: been invited on, actually. No, because, no, he
3: hasn't. Because of the name democracy
1: sausages. He's just not, not really fond of
3: democracy. Pro-sausage
2: anti-democracy.
3: <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he, um, yeah, well, I, I mean, look, probably it doesn't make too much of a difference because there's plenty of speculation going on. Um, certainly, um, there's that's where most people seem to think that the offensive is going to come. Um, but, I mean, from, from what I've gleaned from following people who are, um, you know, very closely engaged in you know following the troop movements and intentions and, and you know structure of the Ukrainian and Russian military, it's not a, it's not certain. Um, the Russians seem to expect that the um, that the um, counteroffensive will come around about Kherson. Um, but can you just say where that is? Because I'm looking at a map now. Oh, yeah. I'm so Kherson's not-, not on that map. Um, so it's to the east of Odessa um, on the southern coast of um, on the southern coast of Ukraine.
1: Right. So it's in between uh, Odessa and the Crimea,
3: effectively, yep. which yep. is the Crimea being. Controlled by, by, the, by Russians. the Russians, yeah, yeah, exactly, yep. So it's kind of um, it's at the or very close to the front line in the south between the Russians and the Ukrainians, right?
2: And and it, it's an important kind of um, supply route, right? For, yes, is, for yeah. the Russians.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's an important supply, and for the Ukrainians as well. So you know, if the Ukrainians are going to resume seaborne trade um, from um, from from the coast um, in future, then you know, having control of Kherson would be very important for them in that regard.
2: I, I think I believe it was one of the first cities to be sort of. It's been under occupation now for for several months, and I think I think it's actually very difficult to even understand what's going on in Kherson.
3: Yeah, that's great. I mean, there was an, a, an article, I don't know if anybody um, has read it in the Daily Mail, which is not, you know, everybody's cup of tea in terms of um, British newspapers. But no, no, not mine, that's for sure. <laughs> no, 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 definitely not, not mine either. Um, but, you know, occasionally it does come up with some good stuff. And they had a foreign yeah. correspondent who was in there and talking about some of the things that, um, you know, um, have been um, going on. And it's really quite um, horrific. To be yeah, honest, but I would recommend that people read it. It's yeah, idea for what's going Okay,
1: on that's good, military. Maria. I, I just wanted to uh, sort of put to you this question. Um, going back to Charlie's original point about um, you know the the expectations right at the start of the war and the idea that they could the Russians could effectively decapitate the leadership um, and turn Ukraine into a into a sort of a puppet state, um, but uh, Volodymyr Zelensky uh, very clearly uh, indicated right from the get-go. That he wasn't going anywhere they were going to stand and fight. And there was a real declaration then. You know, they really sort of it was one of those sort of start out as you mean to continue things, and they have continued in that way. Uh that's that was that's in, in sort of a in terms of like rallying the population, making unifying national intent, it was such a critical few days, wasn't
2: it? Well, yeah, I, I think so. I think it, it sort of instilled a lot of confidence in the in the population. I mean, you know, recall that uh, several million people left Ukraine at that at that time. Yeah. Only some of which um, have um, returned. Um, but I guess some of the things that I guess people perhaps underestimated, um, in, I guess that relationship between Russia and, and Ukraine at the time was. And Charlie would know more about this than me, really, but. Um, It's not that as if the Ukrainian army had no experience. I mean, they've been fighting um, a war in in the east there um, for eight years, um, and had gained experience. Um, You know this conflict has once again revealed corruption in the Russian military, which is a lovely um, historical echo, or lovely is not the right word, but it's a historical echo that um, precipitates crisis and reform of the Russian state and sometimes cataclysm and revolution um, in in the Russian state. Um, And I think what's kind of really interesting is, uh, I guess, like because Putin hasn't called it a special hasn't called it a war, it's also given Russian troops who don't want to fight there um, some legal protection. They can't be compelled to fight in quite the same way, which has also had a big impact on their ability to um, manoeuvre and um, resupply, um, which I think kind of goes to what Charlie was sort of saying about how the situation is changing um, now and how Russia can manage its order of battle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The idea of legal protection in Russia is uh, kind of laughable, I must admit. But um, I, I take your I take your point. Um, uh, it's it's a very good point. Um, one of the other things that arises out of uh, of what you were saying, Charlie, in mm-hmm. terms of that that first answer um, when you got on to HIMARS, it made me think about how. Uh, you know the positioning of the international community, particularly America, of course, mm. in this was very delicate, very sort of um, cautious in mm. those early stages because, and this goes to the whole question mm. about why Ukraine wasn't a member of NATO anyway, mm. which is that that notion of a a, a U.S. aligned or a Western aligned government on the actual border of Russia mm-hmm. uh, with such a close, you know, historical mm. ties, albeit mm-hmm. um, problematic ties with mm. with Russia, um, and. And so that, so the idea of American troops on the ground or American direct mm. involvement in the mm. war was seen as something that had to be avoided at all costs. Mm. And the Russians made that very mm. clear mm. and America made it mm. very clear. It's, it's essentially been the doctrine that has underpinned mm. everything that's happened since. And yet it is those HIMARS and other precision mm. weaponry that is being supplied by the West and a
3: good deal of it directly from the U.S., mm. Yeah. that is turning this war. And yeah, that's absolutely. not
1: lost on Putin,
3: is it? No, I mean, look, uh, it's not just turning the war. I mean, I don't think Ukraine would, would have been able to continue if it hadn't been receiving arms from the mm. West. I mean, apparently they, they ran out of their old style Soviet um, Soviet munitions a long time ago. Um, and since then, I mean, they've been entirely dependent on, for a number of very important weapon systems on the West. And I think what we're seeing actually is um, almost a sort of a probing of the boundaries um of what you can get away with in terms of conflict without actually triggering Nuclear war, mm. um, because you know, like in the you, you thing back to the um, the war in Afghanistan in the 1980s, where um, the Americans and the British and others were providing the Mujahideen in Afghanistan um, with weaponry, as you know, Stingers and so on, um, to, to fight, fight the, the to fight the Russians, to fight the Soviets, exactly. But the, the thing is that they did it; they tried to do it in such a way that it could be deniable. Mm. Whereas now um, they're doing it quite openly yeah. um, with respect to the Ukraine, and presumably the reason why they wanted to make it deniable in the 1980s was to avoid the risk of nuclear. Clear escalation, so we're kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit and seeing, you know, like how much.
1: Well, I suppose a key difference then was that mm-hmm. the Cold War still existed.
3: I suppose so, yeah. But I mean, um, you know, that th- uh, yeah, I, I suppose I suppose that's true. But I mean, you know, the tensions now are equal yeah, if, not, yeah. if not greater, yeah, to, yeah, That's right, to what, there to, what, to what
1: to what the Cold War was. Different language but similar yeah, levels. Similar, similar, implications. similar levels
3: of um you know similar levels of hostility. Yeah. Um now, I mean I, I think that this is I, I think that it has been shown now that the West can really provide infinite amounts of, I mean theoretically, obviously in practice it can't provide infinite amounts of weaponry, but what I'm saying is that just providing weaponry by itself to the Ukrainians is not going to provoke Russian nuclear retaliation, provided those weapons are not actually operated in Ukraine by Western military personnel. Well, uh, that's an interesting point because
1: that is is—that is the judgment that's been yep, made obviously, okay. but at some point if Putin decides that mm. the particular weaponry, mm. either the quantum of it or the quality mm. of it, mm. and it seems like the uh, Western uh, technology is mm-hmm. superior, mm-hmm. more accurate yep. weapons for a start, um, which are critical in, mm-hmm. in, in, in uh, as you say, getting those supply dumps mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, if if Putin decides that mm-hmm. that, that particular development is mm-hmm. such that it is tuning the war that he mm-hmm. was otherwise mm-hmm. slowly, grindingly right. winning, mm-hmm. he, it, it may lead to the same calculation
3: on his part. It may do, but I mean- um I I don't. First of all, I mean, we don't really know with any great degree of certainty what would trigger a nuclear war for the simple simple reason that there's never been a nuclear war. There's been a nuclear strike by one country on another, the United States on Japan, but there's never been a nuclear war. So we've got an N of zero, basically. We've got no real evidence as to um, what would actually trigger it. Um, and thankfully we don't um but I mean you've had you know nuclear theorists, your thomas Shelling's, wall Staters and Jarvis and others um looking at and Powell um looking at you know what um, under some fairly plausible assumptions, would trigger a nuclear war, um, and I think i um, generally the consensus is that you know a, a quantitative distinction, like you know if you send two hundred HIMARS and we won't nuke, nuke you, but the two hundred and first we will, that is unlikely to be the trigger for a nuclear war. It's just not really credible to threaten that you know like you can send this much of this stuff or you can stop us at this particular place, but not this particular place, and that will you know that 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 doesn't really that doesn't. But isn't
1: really- it more just uh, it- isn't it isn't his calculation particularly if he is some element of him is is mad or you mm. know he's he's mm. all powerful and he's mm. humiliated I don't think he's mad. <laughs> no, you, well, you know, it depends what you mean by it, I suppose. Um, he's certainly bad. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, but, but, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, mm-hmm. isn't in the end the calculation is, is he being humiliated enough? Is it do, right. Does he feel like, you know, the right. story he's told the Russian people about mm-hmm. this special operation, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. then turns out to be mm-hmm. a massive blood nose mm-hmm. for Mother Russia, mm-hmm. at what point, you know, how does he react?
3: Yeah. Well, okay, so. Um, I think that that's a legitimate fear, right? So the stuff about humiliating Russia and so on that Macron and others have spoken about, um, I think that that was premature at the time it was spoken about. But in general, um, yes, you know, there are limits to uh, in terms of what you can do to a nuclear armed power, right? So, I mean, obviously we can't have a NATO force advancing on Moscow. You know, we can't have nuclear strikes against Russia um, because that would trigger a nuclear, nuclear retaliation. The question is, you know, what's like, what what are the limits? Now, I mean, there's a couple of things that I think need to be borne in mind, which is, first of all, that Vladimir Putin now has pretty much total control over the Russian media. um, And if he can persuade enough Russians, and he seems to have persuaded the majority of Russians, that, you know, this is indeed a legitimate, special military operation undertaken for legitimate purposes. He can also spin... vast majority of outcomes in such a way that yeah. it looks like a Russian victory so um, I think that that's you know that's that puts a kind of a limit on how bad defeat in Ukraine would be for him you also have to remember that you know he's been constructing a political system for two decades more than two decades now um, such that it is very very hard to remove him from power you know like he knows how to stay in power um, he knows how to get people's loyalty he knows how to set potential enemies against each other Um, so um, the, the downside to him from losing losing in Ukraine, I think, is um, much less than the downside of triggering a nuclear war with the West, which would involve Mm. um, his own personal destruction and the destruction of his country as well. Um, So I don't think that that's... uh, I I think that that is overblown. Um, Another reason why I think it's overblown is because I don't think it's anything like um, as certain a done deal that the Ukrainians are going to be able to win a decisive victory, as many people in the West think that it is. Yeah, it's not just a sort of a black and white issue, is yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, if Ukraine can get to the point where it's pushed Russia back to the de facto boundaries that existed at the beginning of this year, it's doing very well. Because the Ukrainians have suffered a lot of losses as well. They're having to um, basically adapt to a hodgepodge of different weaponry that they're getting from different countries. Um and all of these things mean and they're also, you know, if they're if they're going on the offensive, then they're having to perform an operation and which is very different to the operations that they performed defensively around Kiev. And so therefore Um, if the Ukrainians can get to that position, then, like I say, they're doing very, very well. Um, If they can actually get to the point of of pushing the Russians out of all Ukrainian territory, they're doing exceptionally well. Exactly.
2: This is literally um, an army in which citizens fundraise to Mm. buy units, flak jackets, And drones, Um, you know, like uh, the Ukrainian government has put out calls to its citizens or diaspora around the world to send them their drones, right? It's crowdfunded
3: crowdfunded war. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, Zelensky, when he was talking to the ANU last week, he said, you know, he even gave, there's an initiative, I think it's called United 24 or Ukraine 24. You can Google it. um, And this then, you know, comes to a Ukraine government site where you can then and I would advise people to do this because I personally have done this you can select whether you want to buy defensive equipment medical equipment reconstruction equipment etc and then you can make your donation directly to Ukraine so uh, Google it Ukraine24 or 24, United24 24, not sure which one it is um, and you can donate money so please okay, do okay
1: that's a that's a really good tip we'll take a quick break there and be back in a moment
0: introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com website creation is hard
2: or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about, you know, the possibility or the, the hope, I guess, in Ukraine that they can push the Russians out of their territory. Uh, Charlie, you were saying that mm-hmm. if they even, you know, get the, the Russians back mm-hmm. to the place where they were at the start of this year, yep. uh, for example, they'll, they'll be doing pretty well. I guess one of the other dynamics in this, and bearing in mind, as I made the point before about... Um, NATO membership mm-hmm. or the denial of NATO mm-hmm. membership to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. One of the outcomes of this war has been the inclusion yeah. of two new states into <laughs> Sweden NATO: and Finland, yeah. Sweden and Finland. Quite. So, the the moral argument you might say, or the strategic argument, mm-hmm. even to a to a degree, of not having Ukraine. Let, mm-hmm. Let's let's assume we roll forward to some sort mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. resolution of this mm-hmm. conflict. How does how does NATO say to Ukraine now, which borders Russia, but mm. so does Finland mm, and Sweden? Um, does Sweden? I can't. No, no Sweden, Sweden, Sweden doesn't, doesn't but though. Finland yeah, does. Yeah, it's very France. long border. Mm-hmm. Um, how does how does NATO say to Ukraine then? Well, you shouldn't be a member of NATO. <laughs> that, that's the first point. But I guess the a preliminary point really is that presumably, mm. if there is to be a settlement, mm-hmm. then the non-membership of NATO is a key part of it, a key demand of Russia.
3: Probably, yes, that would be a key demand of Russia, yeah. Um, It also kind of depends, you know, what what territory is um, left over at the end of the war, you know, who it belongs to. I mean, let's look at the Donbass, for example. You know, suppose, um, first of all, that some of the Donbass is um, still in Ukrainian hands at the end of the war when there's a settlement. Well, um, then if Ukraine joins NATO, that means that the whole of NATO... Turk, Britain, Turkey, the United States, Canada, Finland, everybody is all, you know, basically, um, Putting themselves on the line and saying we will um, fight a war with Russia that could go nuclear mm. um, in order to um, you know protect a small part of Donetsk that is still part of um, that is still under Ukrainian control, um, and that's a really really difficult sell. Um, but conversely, you know suppose all of the Donbass is under under Russian control, well then Ukraine presumably will want to take it back at some point. Yeah, and so Ukraine then will you know. Um, then effectively, what you will have is a situation where you could have a revanchist, um, you know, sentiment in Ukraine that wants to take back the Donbass.
1: Yeah, um, and revanchist being, uh, uh, being a term for for, yeah. for wanting territory back, yeah, wanting, wanting to move to, the yeah, border exactly,
3: back. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, then what you would have is, you know, something that could dra- could equally well drag in um, NATO. So I think that's really the problem. Um, besides the peace, sort of, um, yeah, you know, it's the, 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 the
1: it's, it's actually a live problem, isn't it? I mean, it, yeah. essentially, the, the situation where Sweden and Finland weren't members yeah. of NATO uh, and weren't trying to be
3: members right. of NATO kind of suited both sides, right? Um, but it did, the funny thing is that Russia hasn't really care, doesn't seem to care that if you're Sweden and, yeah. you know, I mean, it's strange that you know NATO expansion is the thing that the Russians are claiming and some of their kind of, um, I wouldn't want to say fellow travellers in the media are claiming um, was a spark of the war in the first place and then NATO expands to Sweden and Finland are two very big capable states and Russia doesn't care. I mean, that's rather strange.
1: Yeah, I, I suppose Maria that goes to uh, some strategic things, some historical things, some cultural things. I mean the the uh, Russian Orthodox mm. Church yeah. it has its headquarters or is origi- originates in in Ukraine. Yeah, well, Kyiv is the you yeah. know the
3: the, 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 the original the, the seat center. of it. Yeah, yeah, the seat of um, you know where originally yeah. um you know Ru- Rus, Rus- culture. That's right. Comes
1: and, from, and and yeah, and, and, and Putin was making that point mm-hmm. in that sort of Mm. And you say he's not mad, but it sounded pretty <laughs> mad, this thing you were saying just before the war actually started, that, mm. you know, essentially Ukraine as a state didn't exist, mm. um, that it was all Russian territory.
2: Mm. Which is absolute crap.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, um, so, I mean, historically parts of – there are parts of Ukraine, modern-day Ukraine, that have never been in um, Russia. Um, you know, the, it's – Ukraine – was I guess the most unlucky state after the end of the First World War it was pretty much one of the few countries that was denied um, self determination in in Europe. Um, parts of it were gobbled up by Poland, uh, parts of uh, Romania, and obviously uh, large slabs of it stayed uh, within the uh, now the new Soviet Union. Um, but you know, as a as a part of the Russian Empire, its its existence within. Um, within Russia is is only around um, less than 200 years. And the, the word Ukraine itself, it, it means um, it's literally on the edge. Yeah, periphery uh, or something, is, isn't it? More yeah, to, which yeah. is why Russia, Ukrainians really hate it when it's called the Ukraine mm. instead of just Ukraine mm. um, because it sort of buys into that idea um, that, you know, uh, Ukraine is part of um, – of Russia and always has been, and and there's a long um, running uh, nationalist movement that, that 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 goes to that imperial project of um, binding Ukraine into Russia, which included um, you know the sort of forcible conversion of uh, you know essentially like unite Ukrainians or Catholic Ukrainians to be Russian Orthodox style um, Ukrainians. Um, Russians traditionally referred to Ukrainians as a sort of like a little sibling, but the sort of like a sort of insult in in Ukraine um, was to call someone a Moscovite, which was to say they were an imperialist. So these these traditions or these, these sort of this sort of sentiment around Russian. And Ukrainian um, nationhood all predate these conflicts, but that sort of explains, I guess, why um, Putin has like an emotional attachment um, to Ukraine. And I think one of the int- more interesting things I, I sort of read in relation to this um, conflict was that it seems like they, the, the, the Russian State Service, Secret Service, didn't really seem to have a very good um, intel on some aspects of. Um, Ukraine in the sense that we don't really need to invest in like understanding Ukraine as like a national project because it's not really a state. It's not really separate from us. It is really part of the Russian state, which kind of explains some of the, I guess, weird um, responses um, that Putin has had in relation to, say, Ukraine then compared to um, Finland, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I
1: agree. mm -hmm. I think that's actually a very strong element of it, that uh, it's, it's almost like this sort of the legitimacy of the argument about Ukraine's independence mm. just doesn't cut with Russians or with, yeah. with, with, with Russians yeah. of Putin's mindset anyway. Yeah.
2: But, the, but the reality with Finland, right, and Sweden joining NATO, is that if Putin talks about it, then it, it elevates it in the media in Russia and it looks like a failure, which it clearly True. is, right? And so there's, I think, a bit of tactical silence yeah. <laughs> on that matter. <laughs>
1: That's true. Wouldn't, wouldn't we like to see a bit more tactical silence uh, from, from a number of people? <laughs> uh, great, yeah. great phrase. Um, wh- what do we make of the uh, recent agreement on grain shipments from Ukraine? Um, did, did, because that sounded like, I guess, if you're look, looking mm-hmm. at it afresh, uh, it sounded like Russia agreeing to mm-hmm. a source of income
3: for Ukraine to mm-hmm. help finance
1: its war, which is a kind <laughs> of a
3: surprising thing. Well, I mean, okay. There's a couple of couple of interpretations of this one. Um, So the first interpretation is that um, what Russia is doing effectively um, is um, conceding something to Ukraine for public relations purposes um, when it's actually too late to make that much of a difference to Ukraine. So... Um, You know, the harvest is all, you know, that that season is all kind of gone. You know, it's a little bit late now to be shipping grain out of Ukraine. Ukraine will make some money out of it, but not as much as if they'd agreed to this a month or so ago, for instance. Um, So that's one of the interpretations. There might be something to this. It frees
1: up some silo space as well, though, doesn't it, for future harvest?
3: um, Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. So this comes to a second point. Um, which is actually um, much more fiendishly cunning, I would say, if this is what the Russians are thinking. Um, So what's actually happened um, in recent days or weeks um, is that um, a lot of other um, grain producers from around the world have really stepped up their grain production to make good the shortfall from Ukraine. So France, um, for example. And um, this is basically... Um, I mean, what you would expect, you know, from from a market, you know, there's a shortage, the price goes up, and then new um, supply steps into the breach to uh, make good that shortage. And so um, what the Russians may want to do is they don't want to wean the rest of the world off Ukrainian grain entirely. So if it comes to the point that other countries like France or the United States or Argentina or whoever can make good the shortfall from Ukrainian grain, then the rest of the world is not going to be as dependent on Ukrainian grain as it used to be. And therefore, the coercive leverage in the long run of um, Russia, um, f- to Russia, of being able to cut off Ukrainian grain supplies is lessened. So what they need to do is they want to they hurt the rest of the world by cutting off Ukrainian grain for some time, but not to the extent that they would actually replace it with something else. Right. Interesting.
1: So I suppose one of the other elements of this, and we've seen seeing a lot of talk about this at the moment, is what this geostrategic situation we we know what it means uh, for, for for the economy we know what how this is fed into an already you know difficult situation because of covid and and other things um, in in supply chains and we know about energy prices and so forth directly affected by uh, the war in ukraine and and europe's hmm. addiction to russian gas and so forth um, one of the other things that's come out, though, in, in recent days particularly, and I suppose this was being talked about in theory know, uh, right from the very beginning of the war, um, but that is the, the situation between China and Taiwan. Mm. And that, of course, has elevated or escalated mm. in recent days because of Nancy Pelosi's mm. visit there. Mm-hmm. Um, the US has a policy of strategic ambiguity, mm-hmm. uh, which mm. is a lovely term, and <laughs> um, and I would have thought that one of the things about strategic ambiguity is you sort of can't really talk about it or you don't want to codify <laughs> too many right. things.
3: Or you want to talk about it in very, very vague terms.
1: Yeah, precisely. And, and the trouble is you can, you can sort of quasi codify it by your actions. And it mm-hmm. looks to me like that's what Nancy Pelosi was mm-hmm. rather ham fistedly doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, great for values, but, yeah. but, but, you know, really, I mean, look, yeah. look at the result here. Um, and I, I just wonder. There are two things really here. One is has Russian uh, the sort of Russian, Russia being bogged down in Ukraine given mm-hmm. Xi Jinping mm-hmm. pause for thought if mm-hmm. he had mm-hmm. uh, you know plans at some medium term yep. plan to to roll into Taiwan.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it must have done. Yeah, and I think this is one of the big. Um, strategic advantages to um, the United States and to Western countries more generally from supporting Ukraine is that it would serve to give um, China some pause before making a move against, say, for example, Taiwan. Now, um, there's a number of components to this. One of these is um, that word that gets thrown around in international relations so much, which is resolve. So um, according to some people, it shows that actually, you know, the West is more resolved to defend democracy than China and Russia thought um, and um, citizens of democratic countries are more resolved to defend their democracy than China and Russia thought. Um, I mean, there's a huge debate about this in IR. Some people think resolve is not important. Some people think it's quite important in some circumstances and so on. Um, So I wouldn't make too much of it. I wouldn't make too much of that argument. What it does show, however... Um, is that in practical terms in the battlefield, um I think there is now um more of an advantage to the defensive um to defensive weaponry, so we've seen you know with the ukrainians with the um the javelins and so on um and the tactics that they used to blunt the Russian offensive on Kiev um that could provide a kind of a blueprint for how the Taiwanese Republic of china military um could blunt any potential chinese um invasion and in fact um increasingly um there's talk of shaping west or american military aid um to taiwan around you know pushing taiwan in the direction of adopting this kind of like dispersed um, you know, um, hedgehog-like strategy to blunt a Chinese offensive. And there's many voices in the Taiwanese military are calling for this um as well. Um and so um I think that in in that sense of, of showing you know the power of this defensive strategy, I think it will give um Xi Jinping um a bit um a bit of pause before potentially attacking um Taiwan. Now A couple of weeks ago, I was watching um, Q&A where we had um, Hugh White, my colleague, Hmm. um, our colleague from SDSC, um, you know, great guy, great thinker. Um, You know, really good at sort of probing, um, you know, the conventional wisdom and finding holes in it and so on. Um, But I think um, he had a rather kind of partial take on the differences between um, Taiwan and Ukraine. So he said, look, um, Ukraine has the Polish border that the West can resupply the Ukraine through and Taiwan doesn't have that. So therefore, it would be easier for China to take Taiwan than it would be Russia to take Ukraine. But he completely omitted the fact that um, Russia didn't have to cross the Taiwan Straits in order to invade Ukraine. Right. I mean, if you're talking about an invasion of a country like Taiwan, which is a wealthy country, capable state, capable military over a body of water the size of the Straits of Taiwan, even before you're talking about potential American or Japanese intervention, that's a really, really, really difficult undertaking Hmm. Um, and probably even thought of as being even more so. Um, you know, given what the Ukraine war has revealed about the balance between offensive and defensive technologies, um, so um, yeah, I think that um, it's it's really good that that this is the case. But I actually am really quite sceptical um, that um, a smart Chinese strategy would involve invading Taiwan at all. Um, I think that if they really wanted to take Taiwan, they'd be much better advised to try and blockade it rather than invade it. Um, but that's a conversation we could have at, at some some other point
1: yeah Maria it's a it's a, w- what was your take on Nancy Pelosi's trip there because you know Australia's response has been to say well that's a matter for the Americans no, albeit that uh, Peter Dutton has said that he's glad the the, the trip happened um mm. because oppositions <laughs> don't have to be quite so <laughs> strategic or diplomatic uh, or maybe just because you know he he wants to cause trouble I don't know but uh, anyway, the Australian position, Richard Miles and uh, Penny Wong and uh, Anthony Albanese have all sort of made this point that it's, it's, it's essentially for the Americans that Australia's policy, indeed the West's policy, remains uh, completely the same, which is that policy of one China and the – Americans have this strategic ambiguity question there's been a little bit of chatter about uh, from from a senior US military official uh, about an expectation that Australia would play some role were the US to be involved in the defense of Taiwan but i just wonder what was your uh, overall sense of the wisdom of Nancy Pelosi making this statement because it has rather upset the equilibrium. I mean, we can protest as much as we like that nothing's changed, but in a sense it has changed. At least that's the way one side sees it, Russia. Sorry, China. China. China, Forget Russia for a moment. China.
2: Yeah, so I guess, um, and I I imagine Charlie actually has a better grip on this than me, but like um, as as I understand it, Pelosi isn't officially part of the Biden administration and that was the sort of, uh, I guess, argument um, made by um, Pelosi's um, team. Um, So I guess I don't really – I guess I actually would actually kind of like to understand that relationship Mm. um, better and how that kind of functions. And, I I mean, I imagine that um, there would be people within the Chinese government that would actually understand the proper implication of that visit um, but may have chosen to – use it for rhetorical, um, Purposes um, to suit their own ends, but yeah, Charlie, like, how, how does that actually work?
3: Well, yeah, look, Nancy Pelosi is not part of the Biden administration. That's true. She's part of the legislature, um, the House of Representatives. She's and, part of the and same party, isn't she's in, part in, of the same party. However, yeah, right. so that's why I mean, yeah, it's a very and party kind of legalistic, means a lot to the Chinese. Yes, it does, yeah. It's a very legalistic way to sort of wriggle out of saying that this is you know not such a big deal because mm. yeah, she's not part of the Biden, but she's very very she. I mean, I don't know exactly, but I would imagine that on a personal level, she must be pretty close to Joe Biden. Because I mean, you know, she's been in the house for how God knows how long, and Biden's she's eighty-two. Been the, she's eighty-two. <laughs> she's eight Biden, even older than him. Biden has been in the set was was in the Senate at the time that the Americans were still in Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, you know, like they've known each other for. Was a there long at Watergate? Time. I think. Yeah, yeah he was yeah. there. At Watergate. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he was there. with The, um, the withdrawal from uh, from Vietnam too. And I mean, uh, you know, they they must coordinate very, very closely on everything, and so it really doesn't. um, It really isn't credible to say that this isn't something that Biden um, has agreed to. um, To be careful. The other thing that's
1: really uh, sort of surprised me about it is that one of the there was a fair amount of sort of chatter about this in the West uh, as the Ukraine war kicked off Mm. that 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 um, China might use this Mm, as an opportunity to you know, make a move on Taiwan, yeah. to, to put it in blunt terms. Yeah. It strikes me, given in that context, that mm-hmm. it's a pretty odd thing to do to yes. then essentially provoke them yes. to do something along those lines. And yes, the, exactly. the, what we're now complaining about, Western countries are now complaining about, is an overreaction by Beijing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Which unquestionably it is, right? Yeah. Let's not oh, be yeah, let's yeah, not yeah. beat about the bush about it. Yeah. It's a, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless there's a pretext there at least in yeah. the chinese yeah. mind about why they're doing it and now they're yeah. testing out uh, you know plane to ship weaponry yeah. in the taiwan yeah. strait and all kinds of things it's
3: oh, yeah i think it was a very i mean i think it was a very badly timed move i have no problem with nancy pelosi visiting taiwan at another time. I've, I visited I there with no yeah, problem I no. visited there, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, there was no, 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 no anti-ballistic <laughs> missile technology being tested out to welcome me there. Or at least not that thought, you're aware but, of. Not yeah. that I was aware uh-huh. of, yeah, that's right. But I mean, um yeah, like at this point in time, it is incredibly stupid. I mean, if I was um you know if if i was advising president biden um i would say look the united states main strategic challenges are the autocratic great powers russia and china um and these great powers will coordinate with each other to some degree maybe very limited mm. maybe a little bit more extensive um but nonetheless um you know you you got to you got to face them and the benefit of ukraine um from the cold hearted american strategic and um, perspective is that it is ripping the guts out of the russian military it is you know destroying so much of their equipment killing so many of their top leaders that will be really difficult to replace from the american strategic perspective the best thing for them um is a situation in which re- almost regardless of what happens in terms of a peace deal in ukraine the russian military is so hobbled by the war in Ukraine that is out of action as a serious threat for a long time. And then the Americans can focus all of their attention on China and not worry about Russia quite so much. For me, I see that as being the big case, American strategic case, for, for, for helping Ukraine. Um,
1: but it's a know, really interesting point, though, because it sort of brings yeah. in the concept of time. Yeah. And if we think going right back to the Second World War, Stalin made the observation mm. about the Second World War that Britain provided the time. Yeah. Uh, America provided the money and Russia p- provided Reded the blood. The men. Yeah, the blood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, that was, was
2: all on him.
3: Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't mind. It's not like he, you know. No. that no. really the Russian way, just about, Wave after yeah, exactly, wave
1: yeah. of Russian soldiers uh,
3: thrown into the into into battle. But this is that they can't really do that anymore. No, because you know the, the Soviet Union um, at the time of Stalin was you know had a huge population, a young population, a growing population. Now it doesn't have any of those things. Yeah. you know, Russian um, life expectancy has gone down. That you know it's just an old country. and um, they're having to um really um you know work really hard to put together an army which is you know tiny by World War II standards. So the Russians can't really use that strategy anymore. Mm.
1: But it is interesting that time, yeah, time becomes is, a factor. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. because what Zelensky did, going back mm, to circling yeah. back to where we were before is his immediate response of utmost resistance, of mm. total resolve to use your word. Yeah. Um, and 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 things that mm. have gradually, f- you know, fallen mm. in behind that in terms of mm. making that a viable approach. Yeah, uh, the West's at first sort mm. of reluctant, but gradual mm. increase in the flow right. of arms and so forth. And that time has mm. has just really changed the calculus for the Russians in terms of what they can get yeah. out of it. And uh, and perhaps uh, as we were just saying, perhaps also had an influence in Beijing. Um, speaking of time, mm. I think we're pretty <laughs> well out of it. Finish, yeah. um, so, look, thanks so much Charlie, yeah, for, yeah, for, yeah, for yeah, to you for for being here. Be it's again, uh, yeah. really obviously things are indeterminate, as we yeah. say uh, about exactly, about yeah. this war, but um, it isn't the the lay down that uh mm-hmm. um that it might have been that mm-hmm. some people thought it would be at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, no doubt we'll be talking to you again about it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And please and, do. And hopefully, you know, not about another war somewhere else. No, 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 absolutely. And p- please do um in the meantime i mean look at the look at the mail's um report about the daily, Mail, um, yeah, yeah. The daily mail's um you know report about um, life in um russian occupied ukraine um you know please do um have a look as well at united 24 and see what you can do to give um to help um the, the people of ukraine and please do um also you know if you can as elected representatives um or you know people who can put pressure on elected representatives you know um keep supporting ukraine and keep um, you know, and be patient as well you know like it takes time for all of the the help that they're getting from the West to be assimilated um into their armed forces for them to train up on it don't you know give up if they're you're not getting results from the aid very quickly. Um, just be patient, keep supporting them, because um, it really is, I think, um, an issue for the whole world that, you know, aggression and um, war crimes um, need to need to be defeated and need to not reap a reward for the people who committed them.
1: Yeah. Maria, thank you so much. Also, as usual.
2: Thank you.
3: Always
1: very good to talk to both of you. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Thanks to uh, the uh, Policy Forum at uh, Crawford School of Public Policy for all of their assistance in putting this out Uh, and, of course, to everyone at ANU uh, who's involved in this. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Bye for now.